I love a good story, though. And it's such a gift that as God has authored our hearts, he's made us to just be eager to take in stories so that our, our hearts are shaped and directed in our affections towards him. And this is why I think it's beautiful that Jesus, when he came, told so many stories coming with parables to shape our imagination and understanding of who God is. And this is why as God is authoring scripture, through various writers and authors, by the Holy Spirit and his inspiration, he leads so many writers to put down stories that so much of scripture are these beautiful accounts. And this is, again, why, in part, we as a church have been going through the book of 1 Samuel and sitting in these stories so that we would see more clearly God's faithfulness to us and be in wonder about how he is bringing the true and great King Jesus for our hearts. And this morning, though, I say all of this because we're about to look at perhaps the most famous story in the entire Bible. Definitely in the Old Testament, one of the most famous stories about David and Goliath. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up with me to the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be in chapter 17. If you do not have a Bible, no worries. We'll have some verses on slides, and I will tell the story and draw out some insights as we move our way through. The story begins with a familiar foe. We've seen many times in the book so far, the Philistines. And wouldn't you know it, but they are back invading the land of Israel again. But this time, they have set up camp in a valley called Elah. And there's these hills on either side, and the Philistines are camped on one side, and the Israelites are camped on the other. In the Valley of Elah, we have an image here, is still today one of the most fertile regions in Israel. And it's not this whole photo, it's this this section right down through here, that's the Valley of Elah. And there's small hills on either side, and way in the background, you see the Judean mountains, and this kind of flows down to the Mediterranean Sea, where the Philistines lived, and there's these roads that come up and down into the valley. It's a perfect place to have a battle. But right when we would be expecting the action to begin, instead we see one Philistine coming out from the camp and walking into the valley named Goliath. And he is impressive, to say the least. It says in 1 Samuel 17 that he is nine and a half feet tall. He is a giant. Some say this is a scribal error and should instead be six and a half feet tall, which still in this world, kind of the ancient world, would have been very tall for someone, especially for the Israelites who were much shorter. So nine and a half, six and a half, he is very tall, intimidating to everybody. And it's not just his height, according to the text, but it's also what Goliath happens to be wearing. It says that he has a bronze helmet, he has scale bronze armor, bronze leg greaves, armor on his calves. And even more than that, he has this iron 15-pound spearhead that he can come at his enemies. We know this bronze armor was fairly typical in this day. Here's an image of this kind of armor that would be about several hundreds years later. But this was for anyone who had a lot of money. A very prominent warrior might have had this kind of armor. 
but especially his spearhead was a new, amazing kind of technology that would have been intimidating. This iron could pierce through any bronze armor. 15-pound spearhead. So Goliath is huge. He's dressed in the best kind of armor, has the best kinds of weapons, and he's coming with confidence. Here in his own words, Goliath taunts here in 1 Samuel 17. He says this in verse 8 through 10. It says, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. This is not entirely unknown in the ancient world that instead of having two armies fight it out, they would each send out one champion, one hero to fight the battle on behalf of their armies. And whoever won would be the champion and the victor over the others. So Goliath comes out with this taunt, with this challenge. And who will respond for the people of Israel? Someone should come to our minds pretty quickly. That Saul, we've heard earlier in the story, he's a head taller than the rest of the Israelites. He's tall and impressive himself. More than that, he's the king. And he's been selected so that he can go and fight the battles on behalf of God's people. This is Saul's job. So we're expecting him to step in and to fight for them. But what do we see instead? That Saul is afraid and dismayed like the rest of Israel. That he runs back and hides. So once again, Saul is standing for selfishness. Once again, Saul is standing for fear. The one we should expect to step up to the place is running away with the rest. But we do have hope here instantly in 1 Samuel says that there was a young man named David and he's back watching over his father Jesse's sheep and this is the same David we saw in the previous chapter who was just anointed to be the future king of Israel and the spirit of the Lord came upon David so he is this spirit-filled future king But right now he has been serving Saul, but now he is back at home with his father Jesse watching the sheep while his three older brothers are there with the army with Saul about to fight the battle. But he's at home watching the sheep. And we said this was typical for a youngest son in the family. It's the chore that nobody wanted. I mean, you're out alone, you're dealing with hygiene issues, you're bored all day long watching these sheep, and what's more, you have to face pretty intimidating predators like a lion or a bear. But Jesse, David's father, he upgrades his role from a shepherd to more like an Uber Eats driver, right? So he says, we're not going to have you do the sheep thing anymore right now, we're going to have you take food to your older brothers at the battle, right? And this was an important way of support as families would send food to the soldiers at the battlefront. So I love David's obedience, doesn't hesitate, 
But early in the morning, he wakes up and takes this food to his brothers. It says that he arrives at the camp right when the army of Israel is going out with their war cry. And it seems like maybe the battle's about to start. So David quickly leaves the food that he's brought for his brothers with the keeper of supplies and goes and finds his brothers at the battlefront. And as he's discussing with them, talking with his brother, who comes out with his daily taunt but Goliath, who's been coming out for 40 days? Who comes out but Goliath? And we see that this time, David hears. Nothing else has changed in this situation. Same Goliath, same taunt, same two armies. But the one thing that's changed in this scenario is that now that God's newly anointed king is there and he hears. And what can't God do with someone submitted to his spirit and full of faith? It fills us with eagerness of what God's about to work in this story. But as Saul, uh, Goliath rather brings his taunt, we have the same response from the people of Israel. They all run away again and are dismayed and sit back in just discussion. And they say, do you see this Philistine who comes out? Do you see how he's taunting the armies of Israel? As we sit in the story, it's like, yes, we all see the huge giant guy. Like we've been seeing him day after day after day. That's not the problem. Do you see how all of Israel's running away every day? Do you see that? So they're having a huge problem with faith and confidence. The army is living in awe of Goliath. And you can see that Saul is eager for anybody to step up and fight him. Saul's trying to motivate them, so he set up this amazing reward. He says that whoever will go out and fight and kill Goliath, he will first of all give them great wealth. Secondly, he says, he will allow them to marry his daughter, in essence, bringing them into royalty and the royal family. And thirdly, that he's going to exempt them from taxes for the rest of their life. Is this not an amazing reward? It's like the Powerball lottery of that day. Like, this is the best you could ask for. I mean, he's getting wealth, he's getting marriage, and he's also getting tax-free life. What could be better? But we see nobody steps up for this reward. Nobody's coming forward because they know that to attain it, they have to faith Goliath and his 15-pound spearhead aimed right at their heart, and nobody wants that. It seems, though, that David hears this discussion and he begins to ask questions about this reward. But he adds this amazing line. He says, who is this Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? Who is this Philistine? You see, everybody else in their discussion was saying, do you see this Philistine, how impressive and how amazing he is? They're all living in awe of Goliath, but David comes with a different mentality. And he says, do you not understand the living God we have? And who would dare challenge him and taunt our living God? David begins and is living in awe of the living God. And so he sits back and has a different perspective and view. We'll come back to this in a little bit. But one of his brothers, Eliab, he hears David and these questions about what will be given to whoever fights Goliath. 
And Eliab is not having any of it. Hear what he says to David in verse 28. He cuts him to the heart and says, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Notice the double jab that Eliab, the oldest brother, brings to David. First of all, he takes a shot at what David does. That you're just a pathetic shepherd boy out in the wilderness. And what's more, it's just a couple sheep that you're watching over. He makes light of how few there are for David to even watch. So what you do, David, is not important. You're not important, David. Secondly, he takes a shot at David's heart. I know you're conceited, and I know you're full of wickedness. There's an irony here as Eliab is claiming to see into the heart. And we just know from a previous chapter, it's the Lord who looks on the heart. It's the Lord that sees the deep motives. And the Lord just rejected Eliab, and he chose David instead. Because God knows David's heart is set after him. Maybe those around, maybe the other soldiers who are laughing at this situation, they don't know, but God knows the truth of this matter. But isn't this how the enemy often works? That when faith starts to be stirred up towards God, when there starts to be a passion in us for his glory, when we begin to, be get, to get upset at the disgrace that the people of God are f- is facing and that we want to enter into action and to intervene, often the enemy comes with accusations and lies against us. Now, who in the world do you think you are? Isn't that what he says? You are absolutely worthless. You have nothing to offer or give. Who do you think that you are? That what you do is worthless, nobody cares, and what you have to offer is worthless. You should just go back home. You don't matter in the least. And you think you're good enough to help? You're wicked and terrible. Your motives are entirely wrong. You should be doing none of this work. You shouldn't even be here. Isn't this how the enemy speaks to us in the quiet moments of accusation in our hearts? And we could say, yes, maybe perhaps, enemy, you are right in some of your claims about my heart. But hear me, to be a Christian means that not one inch of the ground that we stand on is covered with our own self-defense. Let me say that again. Not one inch of the ground that we stand on, not one inch of our confidence is built on us. To be a Christian means that I stand on the rock called Christ. I stand on Jesus, not myself. So whatever accusations you bring against me can't undermine me because I'm not standing on me in the first place. My life and my worth and my value is on Jesus Christ. And I know he gave his blood for me. And I know he calls me his own. I know he died for me and he's been raised to new life for me. So yes, you can bring all your accusations, but Caleb's dead and buried. I'm now alive in Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we saw in Colossians? When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive in Christ. So you're accusing a dead man, and that's going to go nowhere. I'm now alive in Jesus Christ. He is the one I look to. I want to sit in this, though. I think there's something important that it's the oldest brother, a family member, 
probably a loved one, someone that David would have looked up to that's bringing this accusation against him. I know that many people have had hard family situations where a loved one can sow a lie into your heart. There's a line that they speak to you in growing up, whether a a parent or a sibling or some other loved one in your life, they speak a line into you that begins to grab your heart. There's deep wounds that come from family. And these deep wounds, hear me, they often try to define us and who we are. Again, these wounds say things like, you are worthless. You have no value. You will never be loved by God. He will never accept you. He wants nothing to do with you. Or there's wounds like, you're never smart enough. You don't have the ability. You don't have the mind. You'll never understand the gospel or the scriptures. It's just better if you let those off entirely. You have nothing to offer. These are what our wounds say, trying to define us. You'll be stuck in the same situation you've always been stuck in. You'll never get out. And that's what family often speaks and wounds into our hearts, and they define us, and we live out of that identity. But the beauty of the gospel is that God wants to come and define us. He wants to speak a new word over you and I. So again, and being a Christian means that I'm not defined by what other people have said about me. I'm defined by the love of God towards me. So we sit and say, I know I've heard your line and I've heard your lie, but I hear the word of God telling me I am loved. And I know Christ has died for me and says that I am loved. And I know the spirit of God is in my inner being and he's saying, I am loved. And then that's how I'm going to be defined. I'm going to look to him in my confidence. So this is now what defines someone who has trusted in Jesus. I know his life for me. And I now know who I am in Christ in my identity. He has made me a new creation. You see this. And he's renewing my mind. So I'm able to take in the scriptures. I'm eager for things I was not eager for before. I am entirely new in Christ. So come and see that you are loved. Come and see that you have a new mind that Christ has given you. Come and see that you have been made, that God has good works in mind for you to do, something that you are gifted in and that he has work for you to accomplish. You're part of the mission here. Do you see how this changes everything? So what lie or accusation has the enemy been trying to bring against you? Or again, what line has a family member tried to sow into you to define who you are? That maybe you've been carrying for not just years, but decades. That maybe God is saying, I want to speak something new about who you are. Seems this kind of confidence that David has, he's not listening to his older brother. He sets that off and keeps moving forward. And this kind of confidence that David had an interest in fighting Goliath at all was very rare because as soon as Saul gets word that anybody's interested, he sends for David and he comes before Saul. But just like his older brother, Eliab, Saul also has doubts about David. And when he sees him, he says, you don't have enough experience. You're about to go and fight an experienced warrior in Goliath. 
So yes, Saul wants someone to go fight this battle. He doesn't want someone to go out and be massacred in this battle, right? So he's saying, you don't have enough experience. But David brings out his shepherding resume. And he says, I have been watching my father's sheep. And get this, whenever a lion or a bear would come and grab one of the sheep. Did you get that? A lion or a bear, right? Not, not a coyote or a fox. A lion or a bear would come and grab one of the sheep. David would chase it down. Chase it down. He would strike the lion or the bear so that it would drop the sheep. And then when the animal turned on him, he said, I would grab it by the hair, seize it, and kill it. Like, that's not a bad resume, right? That's pretty good. He, he might just be qualified for this job. But then we see David's true worth because he gives honor and the glory to God. And he says, it's not me that's won this, but it's the Lord who has delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear. And get this, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So I love he just lines it up. Goliath's just another predator of the flock of God's people. And he's going to strike him down too. That's how David's viewing the situation. So Saul, perhaps in desperation, he commissions David to fight this battle. But he tries to help him out. Seeing how Goliath has all this impressive armor, maybe David, you need some impressive armor. So he gives David his own armor to wear. But when David tries this on and walks around in it, he realizes he's not used to this. It's just going to slow him down. So he sets off the armor and decides to just take a shepherding staff, a stick, and a sling. So get this. <laughs> David's not in the Iron Age. He's not in the Bronze Age. He's going back to the Stone Age, right? <laughs> he goes down to a stream, and he gets five smooth stones with his sling. And he puts these five smooth stones in his shepherding pouch and begins to approach Goliath. And Goliath, he sees someone approaching, finally taking up his challenge, and he begins to approach them, and he sees that David is just a little more than a boy. That's what it says. It tells us something about his age, his confidence. But Goliath, when he sees how young he is, it says he despises him. He hates David immediately. He says, what am I, a dog that you come at me with sticks? And he says, some curses on David, and he says, come here. And then I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the wild animals. But David, as we've seen, this taunt might have driven away the armies of Israel. It's what's been driving them away in fear and dismay this entire time. But David's already faced the taunt of his older brother Eliab. He's already faced his questions about his heart. And he's already faced the questions of Saul about his experience. So he is ready for this moment to also show and step into the questions of Goliath. And David also knows how to give it back very well. Look with me what it says here in verse 45. I want to take in what David speaks. He says, you come against me, Goliath, with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. So you got a sword, Goliath? Well, I've got Yahweh on my side, so this is going to be easy. Secondly, verse 46, keeps going. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. 
David knows how to give it back pretty well, right? That's not too bad. Maybe some verbal jousting has happened with older brothers in the years because he knows how to give it. It says, you think you're going to give my body to the wild animals and birds. I'm giving the whole army of the Philistines to them. But we see this is not empty boasting, not just bravado from a young man, but he again is saying, I am here. My motive is for the Lord's glory, that everyone would know that he is the true God. He is the true king. And lastly, see what he adds one more time here in verse 47. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. The battle is the Lord's. So Eliab was wrong in questioning David's motives. He's not truly conceited and full of a wicked heart. Rather, David is full of an eagerness for God's name to be known. He's eager for God's glory. We see that Saul too was wrong about David's ability to fight. David knows it's not based on his ability to fight in the first place. This is based on God because the battle belongs to him. And so also we are about to see how wrong Goliath is to taunt the armies of the living God. It says, David began to approach him, Goliath coming forward, and David runs to meet him. It says, David reached into his shepherding pouch, grabbed a stone, and he slung it. And he hit Goliath right in the forehead. It says in the text, the stone sunk into Goliath's forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So hardly the battle's beginning, and it's over. <laughs> it's completely done. Now, for some of you, you might be wondering, is this even possible? Can someone sling a stone like this? It's actually well known that there were stone slingers like this in the ancient world. There's a relief of Assyrian stone slingers here in the British Museum. You can see this image of a relief here. And this is actually a really common unit in warfare. They were more deadly than archers. And the challenge wasn't that they were ineffective. The challenge was that it was a difficult thing to learn. It's hard to become a stone slinger. But they were incredibly accurate. So you can see maybe there was an advantage to watching over sheep all day in pastures. David had some time on his hands to learn. So David triumphs over Goliath. It says he comes over, grabs Goliath's sword, and kills him. And when all the Philistines see that their champion, their hero, has now been killed, they all begin to run on the road back to the Philistine cities. And it says that the Israelites surged forward and came after them. And it's an incredible victory that God worked that day. And this famous story of David and Goliath. But sit with me just a little longer in this. Okay, this is an amazing story. Yes, interesting for us to hear. But what does it speak to us here today in Lyons? And how does this shape our hearts? I have two brief ideas I want us to sit in here. First of all, our theology matters. That's what the story is teaching us. Our theology matters. I'm not trying to just use a fancy word. Theology means our thoughts, our study, our understanding of God. That matters. What separates David from the rest of the Israelites is not his height, it's not his strength, and it's not his experience. What separates David from the rest of the Israelites is his theology. It's his understanding of who God is. So again, the rest of the people, they're either living in awe of God 
or they're living in awe of Goliath. And we see the whole army keep setting their eyes and their mind on this giant and how intimidating he is. So they keep running in fear and living in intimidation. That's until David comes and views the situation differently. Rather than beginning with Goliath, David begins with his thoughts about God. And the first words we see come out of David's mouth in scripture are in verse 26 of this story. And that question we saw him ask, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? His wonder is in awe of God and that anyone would challenge him. So everyone else is starting with Goliath and living in fear. David starts with God and he's living in awe and in confidence. Do you see this? It's his theology that separates him from the rest of the people. And often we can think theology and things like that are irrelevant. They're just stuffy things for us to take in, but it is massively needed in our hearts and in our world. We need deeper thoughts about God. Again, that's what separates David, his great thoughts, his great ideas about who God is, taking in the truth of his character and his power. That's what lets him live differently. So hear me, do not settle for small thoughts about God. Don't even settle for taking in a verse a day. That can be great if that's where you're beginning. Don't settle there. Commit yourself to taking in more scripture, more of an understanding of who God is, so that it would begin to stir up your affections and begin to foster in you greater confidence in who God is. So take in some more books, Find great podcasts to listen to. Look for content that's going to build your understanding of the character and greatness of God. And you're going to find you're living with a different viewpoint and attitude. Do not settle. Hear me, King's Cross. Do not settle. But seek to develop your understanding of the word of God and the gospel and who God is. Our theology matters. Lastly here this morning. The true David. We are not the true David. Jesus is. Even throughout this story, I've been comparing us in some ways to David. And this is the normal way to take this story. That we keep putting ourselves in David's shoes. That how is God looking to make us the hero of the story? And that's not what this is about. Surely there's some warrant for this. Yes, we do have giants, if you will, that we face in our life. Yes, we need faith and confidence in God. And it is amazing what God can accomplish in someone who rests in him, puts their confidence in him. God can accomplish amazing things. But if we're looking to be the hero in the story, it's not us. The true anointed one is Jesus. And if we want to find ourselves in this story, we should look at that dismayed and frightened army that's stepping back. Hear me, our greatest challenge in life is not our circumstances. That's not the true giant. It's not a difficult week. Our greatest problem is that we face sin and death. That all of us, all of us alike, have rejected God. And we've traded in living for the glory of God and being satisfied in him. And all of us have traded him and instead taken in lesser things, created things that can never satisfy our hearts. And that's where we place our confidence. That's where we place our hope. We have rejected God and live for other things. So in just condemnation, we are separated from God 
and on our own, hear me, we are destined for eternal death. This is the destiny of every single one of us apart from Jesus Christ. So sin and death, that is the real giant. That is the true foe that we face. But praise God, hear me, praise God that there is a true son of David. And his name is Jesus Christ. That is the hope of the gospel. Not us looking to ourselves and our own abilities. There is a true son of David and his name is Jesus Christ. And sin has no claim on him. Death has no hold on Jesus. And what we were entirely unable to accomplish, Jesus achieved for us. Through his death on the cross, he silences the accusations against you and I. He takes all of that sin on himself. And through his resurrection, he humbles the boast of the grave. He humbles the taunt of death and what it might hold over us so we have confidence because of the resurrection of Jesus. I too will one day be resurrected in him. So we have confidence and hope because the true anointed one is Jesus. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. We can keep sitting in this truth. One of the ways that we get to do this here